When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. This is Carmen Gomez Galisteo, and today I have the pleasure to have with me Fiona Gregory, who is the author of Adcrisis and and Mental Illness. Thank you, Fiona, for joining us today, and welcome. Well, thank you so much, Carmen. It's wonderful to have this opportunity. So I, I wanted to introduce you. Uh, Fiona Gregory is a lecturer in the Center for Theatre and Performance at Monash University in Melbourne, and her research on the history of the actress has appeared in leading journals, including New Theatre Quarterly and 19th Century Theatre and Film. And as I was saying, today we are going to speak about her latest book, Actresses and Mental Illness. So in in, in your book, you choose uh, six actresses, uh, Mrs. Patrick Campbell, Peckin Whistle, Dorothy Hale, Diana Barrymore, Vivian Lee, and Francis Farmer. So what made you choose these particular six actresses? Well, they each came into the project, I guess, at different times and in slightly different ways. I actually wrote my PhD dissertation on Mrs. Patrick Campbell, and she was an actress who she started her career in the 1880s. And um, for my PhD, I was researching her career in its entirety, really, which was how I first encountered her Ophelia. And uh, it stayed in my mind and made me wonder about other actresses who might have had experiences of mental illness or psychiatric treatment and the impact that that might have had on their career or their celebrity. Um, So I kind of held that in my mind for a while. And obviously that brought up um, examples such as Vivian Lee and Frances Farmer, who are kind of the obvious examples, I guess. But I also wanted to balance the analysis with um, some lesser known performers, which is what led me to people such as Peg Entwistle. And I wanted to examine um, some specific experiences, such as the experience of addiction, which uh, brought me to Diana Barrymore. Uh, was it difficult to research for this book because uh, mental illness is something that people try to hide, especially uh, in, in in earlier periods? So maybe it is not so well documented that now we have uh, uh, actresses uh, talking openly about it or being exposed in tabloids or, or the like. 
Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's not a topic that lends itself to straightforward research or traditional research methods. Um, Most archives don't hold medical information. They don't hold medical records. There might be the odd letter here and there from a doctor or um, the mention of um, someone having treatment but uh, that kind of information isn't generally held in in traditional archives. So um, it was a matter of realising that what I was looking for wasn't necessarily going to be spelt out and that I'd need to consider um, subtext and also cast a wide net so look more broadly at um, colleagues and peers and um, family and friends and any kind of material that they might have have contributed. Um, and it was also interesting that um, with this kind of topic, materials such as rumour and anecdote actually became quite useful as a starting off point. But, of course, you can't take that kind of material at face value. You have to, you obviously have to test it. And, uh, for instance, in, in the book, you, you mentioned that Mrs. Campbell, she was considered to be miscast as Ophelia in Hamlet because uh, she brought another dimension into the into the conventional way in which Ophelia was portrayed. Her Ophelia was kind of depressed. So how was this influenced, with her own, uh, influenced by her own experience with mental illness? Do you think she brought something of her experience into the role? Yeah, I mean, it's such an interesting question. And... Um, it's it's a question that it's difficult to to give a firm answer to because it it wasn't really something that she commented on. Um, and I, I mentioned earlier that I wrote my PhD on her on on Mrs. Patrick Campbell, but on on that in that project I was very focused on her performance in a specific role that she played in 1893, which was um, Paula Tankery in a play called The Second Mrs. Tankery by Arthur Wing Pinero. And in that role, she really appeared as um, a perfect representation of the modern woman of the 1890s. It was seen to be, you know, a really timely representation of the contemporary woman. And that was very much linked to the way that Campbell played it. Um, and when I read later accounts of her career, they would all speak at length about her success as Paula, but would mention that she wasn't a very good Shakespearean actress. And when I looked at the contemporary evidence um, that there, there did seem to be very many lukewarm, sometimes even negative reviews of her performances in Shakespeare's plays, but there were also a few, especially of Ophelia, that weren't just positive, they were glowing, absolutely glowing about about the effect that she'd had on the audience or the impression that she'd made. So I wanted to try and account for for that disparity, the fact that she'd gone down in history as as someone who couldn't play Shakespeare and yet here and there there were the odd reviews that said she was doing something really interesting and different in some of her Shakespearean performances and specifically her Ophelia and that her approach to Ophelia was quite original. And then I discovered that um, two months before she began rehearsals for Ophelia, 
she had spent two months in a psychiatric nursing home. Um, She'd had some kind of what was referred to as a breakdown. Um, She was very overworked at the time. She also had uh, some difficulties in her personal life and she had been quite physically unwell. Um, And so she went to this nursing home and she was given what was called the rest cure. The rest cure was a treatment that was developed in the 19th century by um, an American neurologist named Silas Weir Mitchell and it's most famously represented by Charlotte Perkins Gilman in her domestic horror story, The Yellow Wallpaper. Um, And during the rest cure, the patient is required to stay in bed. They're not even allowed to sit up. They are subjected to repeated feeding, so they're almost overfed. They're not allowed any form of stimulation. They're not allowed to even look out a window. They certainly can't read or write. They can't have any visitors. Um, And they're kept under constant surveillance. So this is the treatment that Campbell was given when she went to the psychiatric nursing home. Um, And it's supposed to ease the nerves and enable the patient to recover and return to normal life. But it left Campbell feeling quite shattered. Um, She became very anxious and overwrought. And it's that experience of being kind of on edge, of being um, under surveillance and of feeling very despairing and unsupported that she seems to have channeled into her Ophelia. At this time, Victorian audiences were very used to seeing um, Ophelias who uh, were very pretty. Um, They would laugh and sing and cry and they would make the audience feel um, feel very sorry for her, feel very sorry for this character and her predicament. And Campbell's Ophelia did something very different. It, it bewildered the audience because she was so vacant. Uh, some commentators described her eyes as, as looking out into the audience as if there was nothing behind them. Um, and it was a performance that was very given in a very flat affect and rather than um, making an audience pity her, it made them kind of shudder at her. So, so they were profoundly bewildered by it but I think it was, it was definitely um, marked by if not her experience of breakdown, then certainly her experience of the rescuer um, and the the kind of treatment that she had received in that period in the nursing home. And it was something that Victorian audiences weren't prepared for. Yeah, definitely the, the, the treatment was terrible. Yeah, because imagine, yeah, uh, being being in bed for so long without doing anything. So, wow. That, that really like just, yeah, a complete complete um being a left with your own thoughts which which was not what she needed at that time 
Yeah, pr- pr- probably not because I think that it makes everything even worse rather than than lessen your your, your problems. And uh, then next in uh, in your book, you you speak about a peck and whistle that uh, well maybe she's less popular. Um, if we say the, the name, we uh, when when I read the name, I was like, who is she? But yeah, but then we say, oh, she's the actress who jumped to her death from the Hollywood land sign. So then everybody will know who she is because of this urban legend or well it's not a legend it's true but there are so many stories about her so uh, apart from from her death that make her so famous what was her 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 story as a young actress trying to become famous in hollywood at the time while having a a, a mental illness because for instance you mentioned that in newspapers he she's portrayed as a failed actress desperate for work and driven to the driven by despair and depression but you show that despite the great depression and everything she continued working uh, as an actress yeah look I discovered so so much um that I didn't know about Peg Entwistle like um I mean as you've described there I had exactly the same kind of response I, I only really knew of her as um as the actress who jumped from the Hollywood sign uh, but when I looked into her career and her life, um, uh, she she's actually an incredibly interesting figure, and and one who made some significant achievements in a very short life. She was only twenty four when she died, um, and obviously the reason that she's passed into history is due to the manner of her death. So on. On September 16, 1932, she climbed the Hollywood sign and she fell to her death. And because she was living in Hollywood at the time and she had only made one film, the newspapers picked up her story and kind of turned her into an archetype of the failed actress. So um, she became representative of the young woman who comes to Hollywood, uh, desperate to make it in the movies, but is undone in the process. And so she came to function as a kind of um, a cautionary tale, I guess, or a, uh, a warning. And there have been many, many, many movies, television shows, novels, songs, which have picked up her story and used that archetype. But um, as I mentioned before, what's intriguing is uh, that she is that the meanings that she's taken on after her death, which are all about failure and misfortune and a lack of talent, are very different and uh, not reflective of her lived experience. She actually had quite a distinguished stage career. She was born in Wales in 1908, but her family moved to the US when she was very young. She had quite an unsettled childhood. Her parents separated and then her father died when she was quite young. Um, But she had a very good education and she began acting in her mid-teens and she soon got work with some of the most established companies in Boston. And she was working with major names of the American stage, people like Blanche Yoka, Ethel Barrymore, Walter Hampton. Um, she was playing on Broadway before she was 20. She had a major, she had a lead role in a Broadway production that ran for over 300 performances. Um, 
So her, this is a career that that is marked by significant achievements, but also constant stresses. Um, so she was she was starting her career in the late 1920s, and these were very difficult years to be looking for work, even for the most established performers. Um, you could be out of work for months, if not years. There were many out-of-work actors. Shows could fold very suddenly and unexpectedly. And the fact that Peg Entwistle kept getting work in this environment um, is a sign of achievement, but it's a fact that was pretty much ignored after her death. Um, we don't know why she went to Hollywood. Oh, I'm sorry. We do know why she went to Hollywood. She went to Hollywood to appear in a play. We don't know why she stayed on after that play finished. We think it was because she had found work in, in one film and may have been seeking work in other films. Um, but we don't know why she chose to do that rather than returning to Broadway. Um, uh, but so so her career is marked by some significant achievements, but the idea of her as a wannabe actress whose sense of failure is so extreme that she feels compelled to um, perform this extraordinary, spectacular suicide is, was a more compelling story. And it's that's the story that newspapers latched onto immediately. Um and it's a very useful story for Hollywood as an institution, uh, you know, to think of, of Entwistle in archetypal terms rather than thinking about her as a specific individual um, because it's those kind of stories that enhance the aura attached to Hollywood and make those who who do succeed seem even more special. Also in, in your book, next, you, you speak about Dorothy Hale, who is best remembered for the Frida Kahlo painting. But uh, the, the story of the painting is also uh, very peculiar because it was almost destroyed by one of her, one of Hale's friends by Booth. So what is the story of the suicide and, and the painting and everything that surrounded it? Um, well, Um, Hale, Dorothy Hale, um, it's kind of similar to Peg Entwistle in some ways, and I've put them together in the book um, as uh, examples of of so-called minor actresses whose, um, who the, for whom the facts of their death have become more important than any aspect of their career. And each of them are tied to a significant landmark. So Peg Entwistle is tied to the Hollywood sign. Um, and as you say, Dorothy Hale is tied to this extraordinary painting by Frida Kahlo. And for people who haven't seen it, I urge you to just quickly Google um Uh, the suicide of Dorothy Hale, Frida Kahlo, and you will see this extraordinary picture that that was created. Um, unlike Entwistle, um, Hale didn't have an extensive performing background. She didn't hone her acting skills in touring companies, for example, as Entwistle did. Um, Soon after beginning her career, she married uh, and became part of New York society. And it was only after her second husband died that she decided to 
try and resurrect her performance career. Um, but it seems that she wasn't really able to make the most of the opportunities that um, she encountered. She uh, secured a small role in um, in a major Hollywood film, but that didn't lead to other roles. And she was cast in the tryouts of a new New York play um, by Claire Booth Luce, who who will come into this story shortly. Uh, but but she was dropped from the cast when it moved to Broadway. Um, so for some reason, she just she just didn't seem to be able to make the most of the opportunities that arose, or um, if she wasn't in the right place at the right time. She was incredibly beautiful. People described her in later years as as looking like um, a young Elizabeth Taylor, that kind of that that kind of beauty. Um, and she became a, a, a bit of a fixture in New York society columns as, as a celebrity beauty. But then in October 1938, she fell from her apartment building in, uh, in Hampshire House. And Hampshire House was a very exclusive building uh, built in the Art Deco style. It had been built in um, 1931. Um, and it was it was very close to Central Park. Uh, so um, part of the interest in her her death was also related to this building. Um, her death was ruled a suicide and was very widely reported on. And much was made of a party that she had held on the night of her death. Uh, it was noted that she was wearing this quite spectacular evening gown when she died. Um, after her death, Claire Booth Luce, who was a writer, she had been editor of Vanity Fair. Uh, her husband was the editor of Time magazine and she would later go on to make quite a name for herself as a politician. Um, she went to the opening of Frida Kahlo's first American exhibition uh, in New York and uh, she was very taken by some of the self-portraits that Kahlo was exhibiting there and she asked Kahlo if she would paint a kind of memorial portrait of Dorothy Hale which Booth could give to Hale's mother Um, and Kahlo accepted the commission However, when the painting arrived at Claire Booth Luce's house, she was absolutely horrified and attempted to destroy it, uh, which she was prevented from doing so. She had expected a conventional memorial portrait, something that um, captured the celebrated beauty of of her friend, Um, but that is not what Frida Kahlo gave her. What Frida Kahlo gave her was um, a representation of Hale's suicide. So we see Hampshire House and it looms in the painting uh, surrounded by clouds Uh, and then we see Hale at three moments as a tiny figure in the top of the painting uh, leaving the apartment as a slightly larger figure falling through the air upright uh, 
and then uh, as a larger figure still um, lying on a patch of earth that looks a bit like a stage and staring lifelessly at the viewer. And she's wearing the spectacular evening gown that had been described in um, in the newspaper columns. And Booth was was furious, bewildered, and uh, she immediately began working to remove all associations that she had uh, had with the painting. And she tried to have the painting suppressed. She wasn't successful in doing that, but she certainly removed all of her association with it. Um, and so, so. Dorothy Hale passes into history through Carlo's paintings. So the meanings that are attached to her become very emblematic of, of, of failure and the inability to, um, to forge a career as an actress uh, to a point that uh, she has become mentally unstable. That's, so that's the story that kind of circulates, that has circulated around Dorothy Hale through Carlo's painting. Yeah, I can imagine that you want a memorial and, yeah, the, um, the, 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 the final result is not exactly what she had in, in mind because it, it's a powerful painting, but then seeing your friend's suicide, yeah, it's not something easy to, to, to see and, and, and even less to give to, to her mother. Exactly, but it's so curious because um, there were, um, you know, I mean, most of us have a sense of the kind of work that Carlo did. Um, and although she did do some quite conventional self-portraits and so on, uh, at that exhibition there were some of her more confronting, body-focused works on display that Booth would have seen. So it's surprising that she didn't kind of um, take that into account when asking Carlo to do the portrait. Yeah, yeah, maybe that is something. Yeah, it, it was like a red flag seeing the kind of uh, works that Cal the Carlo was producing at, at the time. And then uh, also, you uh, uh, you explained about Diana Barrymore. Uh, you you explained that her problems they they were part of a context. They were not in isolation because they have much to do with uh, with her family past and also the way drinking was accepted in artistic circles at the time, right? Yeah, that's that's very true. And I felt it was really important to have a, a chapter on addiction um, because stories about actresses and addiction became increasingly prominent in the period that I was looking at from um, the kind of the mid to late 19th century and through the 20th century. And they hold a particular stigma, um, both the actress and the addict are associated with deception. They're both kind of thought of as expert liars. So the the actress who suffers from addiction is kind of doubly coded in that way. Um, and Diana Barrymore is an interesting figure to look at because her status as, um, as an alcoholic became the key aspect of her celebrity during her lifetime. Um, so it wasn't something that 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 ha just happened posthumously. It actually happened during her lifetime. Uh, but as you allude to very early in her career, what was most notable notable about her was her family name, 
Um, she was a member of the Barrymore family. Her father was John Barrymore, uh, who was perhaps the most prominent member of the family in the early 20th century. And uh, alongside his siblings, Lionel and Ethel, they were um, some of the biggest stars of the American stage. Um, and uh, her her father, Father John Barrymore um, was also Drew Barrymore's grandfather, which makes Diana Barrymore Drew Barrymore's aunt, although both um, John and Diana died long before Drew was born. Um, John Barrymore, uh, he he had, he was pro- perhaps the greatest stage star of the early American Uh, of the early 20th century American stage. Um, But by the 1930s, his career was being significantly impacted by his own alcoholism. He wasn't really involved in Diana's life as a child. She was raised by her mother, Blanche Ulrichs, um, who was a member of New York society, but she was also a poet who wrote under the name Michael Strange and she was... She was quite an eccentric. Uh, so Diana was raised by her, but she was certainly very aware of who her father was and of his career and his status, and she was herself determined to become an actress. Um, she studied acting and she had some very strong opportunities, uh, but her career didn't really take off. However, I believe that she did have genuine talent she was certainly a very committed actress. Um, colleagues would write about how she would spend hours and hours preparing her scripts um, and doing analysis. She, however, she had this incredibly complicated personal life. Um, she reconnected with her father and then he died shortly after. Two months after her father's death, she made a very unsuitable marriage to a man much older than herself. Uh, her brother, her half-brother, died of um, an overdose. Uh, she made two more um, fraught marriages. Uh, and through all of this and perhaps as a consequence of all of this, she became increasingly dependent on alcohol. Um, because of her name, her personal life was was fodder for the newspapers and um, she had a couple of brushes with the law as a consequence of her drinking um, and and so she was in the public eye increasingly due to her her um, issues with alcohol rather than anything that she was doing in her career um, and it, it it bears a lot of similarities to the kind of narrative that was built up around her niece, Drew Barrymore, 25 or 30 years ago. Um, but Drew Barrymore was able to pull herself out of that by some very savvy professional choices. Um, and Diana did not have that knack. She... Um, uh, she just, it wasn't until quite late in her life through her professional and personal association with Tennessee Williams that she found the kind of work that matched her talents. Um, and unfortunately, by that time, 
there had been um, a memoir. She had published a, a ghostwritten memoir about her life and her issues with addiction, and that memoir had been made into a film. So she was very firmly established as um, a celebrity addict. Um, my favorite chapter was uh, was the, the next one, uh, the one on Vivian Lee. That uh, well, she's best remembered as, as Scarlett O'Hara, but uh, then uh, she, uh, being an actress who suffered from mental problems, she won her second Academy Award for portraying Blanche Dubois, uh, who is a character with uh, with mental problems. So, how do you think her own personal history of mental problems throughout her life may have informed her her performance? This is um this is a it's a fascinating question, but again it's it it is one that's quite difficult to answer. Um, it wasn't something that Lee really commented on. Um, she Lee Lee is such an interesting figure. She's the one that I developed the most admiration for while writing this book. Um, I think she's quite extraordinary. Uh, she drew enormous satisfaction and interest from her work Um, and she seems to have been able to separate her illness, she suffered from bipolar disorder, her illness from her sense of self. Um, And it's it's such a pity, therefore, that in popular representations of her um, that she's often over-identified with her illness so she's described as a tragic actress or as a sad, crazy woman or as a nymphomaniac. Um, and she undoubtedly experienced profound suffering as a consequence of her mental illness, but that wasn't the sum of her experience. Uh, and and those periods of suffering, I, I this is what I argue in the book, I argue that those periods suffering of suffering make her achievements all the more remarkable and not just her professional achievements but also the achievements of her personal life. She was able to maintain um, very strong, healthy friendships and relationships across her life and she had many diverse interests. Uh, When it comes to Blanche Dubois in A Streetcar Named Desire, There's often a narrative along the lines of wasn't it foolish for this actress who was herself mentally unwell to choose to play a character who is also mentally unwell or that Lee is just performing her own madness in Blanche or that she's disassociating. So those are the kinds of of narratives that are often built up around her performance in, in, um, in Streetcar. Uh, when discussing Streetcar, it's important to remember that Vivian Lee played Blanche on stage as well as on film. She um, was in the premier UK production and she played the role over 300 times. So this was, this was a, a role that she knew really well. Uh, she seems to have focused her approach to the role on external details. So she spent a lot of time on gesture, on costume, on makeup. But she also worked on on understanding Blanche psychologically. So one kind of supported the other. She was technically very proficient. She could replicate a gesture or a vocal emphasis in exactly the same way night after night after night. Um, so she had this very structured approach 
to to performance and to this role in particular. Um, and that was necessary because this was a hugely demanding role. It was it was um, not just psychologically demanding; it was also very physically demanding, and it took it took an enormous physical toll on her. Um, and the labour of the role may may well have impacted her her mental health at times, but I'm not convinced that she was. Um, in inverted commas, made mad by by playing this mad character. Um, she had to negotiate the effects of mental illness and of psychiatric treatment throughout her career, and sometimes her work must have made this more difficult. But I believe that at times it. It also sustained and and helped her meet um, her meet the challenge of of not just of mental illness but of other, but of other personal and professional challenges. And something that you show uh, through the book is that well, there there are many actresses suffering from mental illness. And but however, Frances Farmer, uh, far from being the the only one, or even the first one, uh, she's like the archetype, the embodiment of a mentally ill actresses. So how do you think that came to happen? That when we think mental uh, mental illnesses, actresses, most of us go to Frances Farmer instead of all the others that you deal with in, in the book. Yeah, you're right. She really is, you know, she's the the archetype of of the mentally ill actress, the mad actress. Um and I, I think there's a number of things that are that are making that happen. Um uh she, again, there's little published material where she reflects on on um, her mental illness or or her psychiatric treatment, which was extensive, um, there was a so-called memoir. Will there really be a morning? Which was published in uh, nineteen seventy-two, two years after she died, and it's a pretty dubious text. Um, so the evidence surrounding her life is quite unstable, and that means uh, you know that there's a lot of room there for for um a, a a kind of alternative narrative or a an, an an untested narrative to be to be built up around her um she also she had issues with addiction as well as complex mental illness and unfortunately she's one of the few examples that i looked at where um their experiences of illness and addiction intersected with Uh, with criminal and legal forces. So she was actually arrested for public drunkenness. She was um, uh, she was committed to an institution by law. Um, and this was at a time when the press was taking a less deferential attitude to Hollywood studios and actors and they were preferring prepared to publish these kinds of stories at the same time Francis Farmer was not a big enough star to be protected by the studio she didn't have strong relationships with the studios and she wouldn't play the game um, so as a consequence she was kind of left out to dry 
So photos of her resisting arrest or of appearing in court could be widely published Um, and that established the narrative that was then reinforced with every subsequent incident. And as well as that, Farmer had very little support. Um, She she was not good at, at fostering and maintaining strong and supportive relationships. She had little family support. Her family were at times implicated in in having her subjected to forms of treatment that she did not want to be subjected to. Um, These forms of treatment weren't particularly useful and she also had ongoing issues with addiction and all of that made her story very public. And with the publication of her memoir in the early 1970s, it generated further interest in her. And that was at a time when the anti-psychiatric movement was gaining traction and it enabled her to be positioned as as a, a victim of psychiatry and also as a kind of anti-establishment poster child, uh, you know, because she had, um, she'd been subjected to psychiatric treatment against her will, but she'd also been subjected to the forces of Hollywood as an institution and to, and to the law. Um, so she takes on this kind of aura, this anti-establishment aura as well, which, um, which generates a lot of interest in her and she becomes a kind of a, a pop cultural icon as well. And would you say that now actresses with mental illnesses, they suffer from the same stigma as uh, as these uh, actresses here? Because often we see news pieces about young actresses who suffer from mental illness and their problems are all over the internet and going to rehab and going into treatment and having relapses for everybody to see and comment upon. So do you think that there is still this stigma, this uh, um, uh, aura about actresses and mental illness or, or not? It's a complex question, and um, I don't know. I, I, I guess um, I kind of change my mind about this from time to time. Um, I mean, we're obviously seeing performers and artists um, of all types uh, being willing to comment on their experiences of mental illness in a way that we would not have seen 20 years ago. Like there's been a profound shift. Um, and I think this is incredibly beneficial, especially for uh, younger audiences. Um, and I'm very hopeful that it it does have an effect, uh, that it does challenge stigma. Um, certainly there's less stigma attached to certain types of conditions. So we see less stigma attached to anxiety, for example, or um, postnatal depression. Uh, but I, I feel there's still stigma attached to um, forms of mental illness which are more complex, such as psychosis or persistent depression, and that there's also still stigmas associated with certain types of treatment. Um, and my current research is actually in this area, looking at, at, uh, at whether celebrity testimony of experiences of mental illness and treatment 
do actually have an effect on on stigma. So I think there's there's still a lot of, of research to be done and questions to be asked about how effective it actually is. Yeah, a, a very interesting topic indeed for for us to to know whether it is having a positive influence or, or not. So thank you very much, Fiona, for being with us today. It's been a a pleasure and having you here today. You are so welcome, Carmen. I really appreciate it. So thank you for listening to this New Books uh, Network interview with uh, Fiona Gregory, author of Atrocities and Mental Illness. <laughs>